Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, August the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linna. We haven't quite renamed this podcast the Brexit podcast yet, but there's no doubt that the B word continues to dominate all our politics. Later on today, Boris Johnson is going to travel to Berlin to meet Angela Merkel, having had his proposals, his latest proposals for getting rid of the backstop, already summarily rejected by the EU. To discuss this, I'm joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and by Ronan McRae, Professor of Constitutional and European Law at University College London. Ronan, there's lots we can talk about, even though some think that there's nothing happening at the moment. I think there's an awful lot happening under the surface. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is that the incredible shifting which has taken place in the sort of the frame of the entire debate that we're talking about here about Brexit in the United Kingdom, that if you jumped in a time machine and went back, you know, two or three years uh, and asked people, what does a hard Brexit mean? It would probably mean something along, you know, Canada or something of that nature. But now a hard Brexit means no deal. How, How did that happen? I suppose some of it comes from the binary nature of referendums, that once you have uh, a one-word instruction leave, it's hard to nuance it. And you see uh, Brexit, hardcore Brexiteers always come back to that. Well, vote to leave, vote to leave, and that means leave gradually becomes the most radical form of leave. Because if you look back, it's what's amazing is three years on, we have no idea what the situation, and any no more idea than we did in 2016, what the situation will be other than all the moderate options are gone. So we're really down to this high stakes, no Brexit uh, or no deal game. And in a way, both sides bear some responsibility for that because the Liberals and Labour and SNP have uh, all held out effectively for a second referendum and the hardcore Brexiteers have held out for their ideal form of Brexit. But the fact is now that the process is so radical that a very small minority is driving it. If you remember the deal, Theresa May's deal, lost uh, with 344 votes against it in the House of Commons. Of those 344, no more than 40 to 45 were voting against her deal because it wasn't hard enough Brexit. The 300 votes were against, they wanted soft or no Brexit. But the policy agenda is now being driven by that kind of 5% of the House of Commons who wanted something harder than Theresa May got. And that is quite frightening. I mean, I think we might think about it for ourselves in Ireland that we love referendums, but referendums do unleash this very yes-no process that can often tend to sideline the uh, more moderate options. Pat, what do you think of that? Well, I think I think Ronan is 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 correct. I'm interested to hear him say that the uh, that the options are clarifying to no deal or no Brexit, which seems to me is is probably not the wish of a substantial majority in the in the middle of uh, of of british politics however the house of commons reflects that i suppose is another matter uh, but in a way i think 
you know, the, the, the mismanagement of this process and the bad choices made by Theresa May. And we were all talking about Boris now, but to explain this fully, I think you have to go back to, uh, you know, the early choices made by Theresa May because she was a, albeit reluctant, Remainer, had taken over the leadership of the Tory party, the leadership of the government in the wake of the referendum, felt herself beholden to Brexiteers. And instead of saying, essentially, we are a 50-50 nation on this matter, uh, the best way to reflect that is to leave because leave won, but leave on terms that keep us as close as possible to the EU. And I think she would have been able to make that argument and to push that through probably with the uh, cooperation uh, of the EU. Instead of doing that, she made the fateful decision to, uh, to, to institute her red lines, to, to talk about the end of the Court of Justice, the end of free movement, the end of the single market, the end of the customs union as, as far as the UK was concerned. And an awful lot of, of what has transpired since then, I think, flows from that decision. But, I mean, she's gone, you know, and there is no time for recriminations. We have what we have here. And it seems to me, um, Ronan, I mean, Pat is arguing in today's newspaper, I think pretty convincingly as far as I can see, that really the process that we're going through at the moment, uh, Boris Johnson's trip to Berlin today, the G7 meeting, there'll be uh, head-to-head with Macron, um, that it's all really just uh, playing to the the home crowd. It's not, there's no intention really at all of entering into what we might regard as serious negotiations. Yeah, it does seem like that. Like the, the, the letter was so delusional that Ireland uh, and the follow up today, Ireland will leave the single market for a while, effectively to follow Britain's rules for a while. I know mean, that's there's not that's a waste of a stamp to send that letter. Um, but I, I did talk to someone who's close to civil servants a few days ago who said that Boris Johnson apparently does believe or is allowing himself to believe that the EU will crumble which is kind of frightening because I don't think any serious observer could think that that's true. Um, And I think the other thing here is that Boris Johnson's eyes are focused on an election. Uh, He he has to squeeze the Brexit party's vote down if he's going to win the election. So I think that his main audience at the moment are wavering Brexit party voters. Because if he can unite the Conservatives plus the Brexit party voters, he's 40 to 45% which is uh, enough to win in the first-past-the-post system. So I think uh, that is his primary audience at the moment. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's right. I've thought that since he became leader and selected what was obviously a cabinet and an administration, and you think particularly of the appointment of Dominic Cummings in this regard, to fight an election, not to govern a country. He saw how Theresa May's administration and premiership was destroyed, not just by the complexity of the difficulty of the situation she found herself in, but by the fact that she didn't have a parliamentary majority. If Theresa May had a workable parliamentary majority, a decent parliamentary majority, we wouldn't be in this position now. She would still be leader. 
the withdrawal agreement would have been passed and we would be negotiating the future trading relationship. But she was destroyed by the lack of a majority and I think that that is the first order for Boris Johnson is to acquire himself a majority because whatever he does, be it on Brexit or his domestic agenda, he cannot do it effectively without his own majority. So that's the first thing he, he must do. And if you, if, you, if you believe that and I, uh, and, 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 and I think it's irrefutable, then you must interpret everything that he says through that prism. And that means, as Ronan says, that he's not really talking now to Brussels. He's not talking to Dublin. He's not talking to Berlin. He's not talking to Paris. He's talking to the voters that he will shortly go before. And I think he will deal with whatever happens after that event. And then to add to that, Ronan, it occurs to me, I I was listening to uh, The Spectator's daily political podcast uh, yesterday evening and they were more or less laying out exactly what what Pat and you have said about the focus on on the Brexit party and either crushing them or getting them to voluntarily stand down because the Tory party is doing what the Brexit party wants, wants the Tory party to do. But it was suggested on that podcast that actually... There may be a thought process at play among Bar- around Boris Johnson, which is that they really don't want a deal. They don't want an interim period. They don't want a transition period. Again, because they're looking towards an election. That basically, if you know, you know, if some resolution was found on the backstop and the withdrawal agreement, if the United Kingdom exited, went into the transition period, well, then the the Tory government would be hamstrung in the same way as Theresa May was for the last three years by the dirty pragmatic realities of negotiating the future relationship within parameters set out by the uh, by the European Union and that actually politically they want to be and, and I, I think this probably is delusional but they want to be with one bound spring free. Well I mean the bound springing free is the major delusion because yeah it sounds like new, no deal will happen and then it'll all be done but actually the no deal just triggers uh, a whole series of attempts to cope with the sh- with shortages, with disruptions, attempts to negotiate mitigating measures with the EU. It's not certain that Britain would come crawling back, as a lot of people think, because a lot of the damage is front-loaded. It's disruption to established ways of doing things and supply chains. So there'll be disruption immediately, and then eventually companies will uh, will kind of adapt. And then a lot of the losses of EU membership, like loss of influence, less ability to regulate business, those things are not visible to voters. So it could be once they've gone through the real misery of the first period of no deal, there could be a sense of, well, we don't want that suffering to be for nothing, so we continue on. But it's a complete delusion to think that this process will end, I mean, Sai is saying it, but for the next few years, because even if they are in trade negotiations, they're going to drag on for years, and no deal will create problems that will go for years. And it also makes you think of the lack of patriotism in some ways, which really shocks me because if you think, why did Theresa May not take this hard line? Well, because she looked at what that would mean for the UK and she thought, God, a possible loss of Scotland, economic misery. No, I'm not going to do that. But Boris Johnson is actually putting the thriving of the Conservative Party ahead of the thriving of the nation. I mean, I find that quite disturbing and quite shocking and that there's no political price to pay for that. Well, we will find out, I suppose, if there's a political price to pay at some point. And I mean, the other part of this we should move on to, Pat, is um, the EU is waiting to see what, if anything, happens at Parliament when Parliament reconvenes in the first week in in September. And all eyes will really be on. Uh, there's a There's a multiplicity of options available, none of them easy. 
Um, do we have any sense of what what you know what the the key options are I in terms of no confidence <coughs> vote, in terms of an election, in terms of the House of Parliament taking control of the order paper, and what the consequences of that would be? I think we'd probably have to wait until Parliament returns in early September to see you know exactly what is the nature of the rebellion against No Deal that will almost certainly take place in Parliament in those first two weeks. And I think that's very much the view in both, so far as I can discern it, both in Dublin and in Brussels in, uh, in, in, in recent days. It's, you know, that this is a bit of a, this is a bit of a phony war, really. You know, and we can never get through these podcasts with at least one Second World War reference. Can Indeed, we? <laughs> but the thing about the thing about the phony war is that it was followed by the real thing, mm-hmm. and I think that the real thing, as between the UK and the EU, will uh, will commence once the situation at Westminster and in London and in the UK is resolved, whether that be by an election or by a parliamentary victory for Boris Johnson or whatever. Once that happens, then I think you'll see the EU and uh, and the UK engage. But by that stage, we will maybe into October, certainly into the second half of September. But certainly, as far as I can, as far as I can make out, neither the EU nor Dublin is going to have any sort of serious engagement with the, uh, with the UK on the withdrawal agreement, on the backstop or anything like that before matters are resolved at Westminster? I think the form that the rebellion takes is really important because the, um, there is a majority to stop uh, no deal. Um, and so do they bring down the government, try and install another one is one option. The other option is legislation to force the government to request another Article 50 extension. So look at the legislation option. They have to take control of the order paper probably do that. The Speaker will probably help them. But then what, it's very legally quite complicated. So what does the legislation say? The UK government must request an extension. Okay, they can request and then if the European Council A will say, why do you want it? Uh, if there's no re- or they say yes on the following conditions. Then the British government can say, well, we don't like the conditions. Parliament could, of course, pass a legislation that says you must request and accept an extension. But then the EU could attach any conditions it wanted. It seems kind of unrealistic. Parliament can't. It's very hard for them to conduct diplomacy. There's a reason that this sort of stuff is normally done by governments, because it needs to be done by a small number of people, not an assembly of 600 yahoos. Well, there's also a question of just pure legitimacy, isn't there? These are the functions that are delegated to the executive. Yeah, but, but when that space is contested, then I think you're in line for a genuine constitutional crisis in uh, in the UK, which I suspect Boris Johnson wants to resolve with an election which he will pitch as the people versus parliament or the people versus the politicians. And at the far side of that, then we will see uh, what can be arranged or not between the UK and the EU. But any sort of agreement or amendment to the existing agreement or any resolution as between how the uh, about how the UK leaves, Boris says he wants to leave with a deal, but that can't be done until that challenge has been either faced down or, or, or he is defeated by that challenge. And what Jeremy Corbyn wants is really interesting because uh, in the private polling by the parties, where really he shows that his best chance to beat Boris Johnson, because Corbyn is a real still an electoral liability for Labour, 
is an election held in the in the midst of the chaos of an early no deal. So actually, what Bar what Jeremy Corbyn may want is for Boris Johnson to uh, trigger to call an election after Brexit Day. That way, Jeremy Corbyn gets Brexit, which he wants. He gets the Conservatives to own the mess that that causes and gets to be prime minister. That actually works very well for him. So he may prefer the no confidence option rather than the legislation requiring an extension. Because if he gets the no confidence motion through, then he can try and form a government. He'll want to fail at that because then we trigger an election. Uh, now his party won't want that, but he would want it. Triggers an election that happened, could happen after Brexit day. And then he gets in with, with the Brexit he wants and the Conservatives defeated. So now his party won't want that. So in other, words, in, in, in other words, what Ronan is, is, is saying is that just as Boris Johnson is putting his party ahead of the welfare of his country, so is Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, certainly. I mean, look, the vote, the withdrawal agreement vote was uh, Labour's opposition was kind of based on rubbish. They were saying, oh, but we want a different Brexit. And the EU said, well, you can have a different Brexit once the withdrawal agreement is through and if you're the government, but they still voted it down. So not to get too much into the weeds on this, but um, the process, should there be a vote of no confidence, which certainly looks like one of the possibilities, under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, and none of this stuff, the Fixed Term Parliament Act has only been in place for, for less than 10 years, so none of this stuff has actually been tested, and some of it might end up being tested in, in, in courts as well. There's a 14-day period after a vote of no confidence, uh, and at the end of that 14-day period, as I understand it, the sitting Prime Minister can actually go back and show that they have the confidence of Parliament, or at that point, then there's the potential for somebody else to 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 show such a thing. Um, no, no, during that fourteen during that fourteen day period. During after. that fourteen day period, so it is possible, is it, for a Jeremy Corbyn, for the sake of argument, to actually to uh, to go into the house and to show that he has a support of a majority of the parliament before those fourteen days are up, and then becomes prime minister, goes to the palace. Yeah. Then if it, so, if the house on the shows they back someone else, then the queen. Uh, should call on Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister. Now, the weird thing of the British system is there's no investiture vote because, in theory, the Queen chooses who she likes, but by convention, she chooses the person best placed to have the support of the majority of the Commons. But under the Act, if he shows somehow that he has a majority support in the Commons, she will call on him. Uh, Boris, some very extreme Brexiteers have said that Boris Johnson would still refuse to resign, but I think in those circumstances... I mean, who knows, the Queen would, would fire him and call in Jeremy Corbyn. It will make for great episodes of The Crown in the future. But um, in general, the basic point is if he gets support of the majority in Parliament in that period, he he can become Prime Minister. But you're saying he doesn't want that? We just, a, he won't get it because the Tory rebels won't, uh, won't vote for him. They think he'll be sending off state secrets to Moscow and his Hezbollah if he's in. So they, they, they think... They're more afraid of him as a prime minister than uh, of no deal Brexit. But he's sticking to that. He's, he, and I, what I wonder is maybe he doesn't want to back a more or less kind of controversial candidate because actually he likes the idea of a, of a Brexit, of Brexit and of it happening on the Conservatives' watch. Because if he gets in, then he, he becomes responsible for either presumably eventually calling an election and then a second referendum. So do I take it then, Ronan, that you view the prospects of what we've come to call over the last couple of weeks a GNU, uh, Government of National Unity, which actually seems a terrible word for what this actual government would be, but you don't you don't see that happening? Well, it depends how much pressure he comes under from his party and the public. So you could imagine they, 
the vote no conscience passes, then he tries to be, Corbyn tries to become prime minister, fails, and say there's 10 days left. In those 10 days, the remainder element will be screaming for him to compromise because they will want uh, to stop the no deal, no deal Brexit. So if he can resist that, which I think he'd like to do, won't happen. But I think he could come under an awful lot of pressure, so it's hard to know. But isn't the idea of the GNU that it is a temporary, a very temporary GNU yeah. purely for the purpose of extending uh, uh, extending Article 50 perhaps by a year or six months in order to let either a referendum and or a second referendum take place? Or an elect- a general election or a referendum? Yeah, I think it'll be shorter than a year than the EU is so they can't face another year of this. But well, this is this is the other none of us can. This is the other dynamic uh, that 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 people I think are overlooking a little bit. That uh, as far as I can tell, and I've been wrote about this about nine months ago, and I, I as far as I can discern, it's been growing in intensity since then. That there is a sense in Brussels and amongst other member states, particularly the French that, you know, these guys need to leave. They, they don't want them to stay because they can't put up with, you know, several more years of this, will they, won't they, EU business being utterly dominated by the question of the British exit. And you saw at the, uh, the, the, the last summit, the March summit, not the last summit, but the summit in, in, uh, in March, when Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who we know has very, you know, definite ideas about the future integration of Europe and the path that the EU should take over the coming years, um, essentially seeking to block the six-month extension that was ultimately granted to the British uh, at that stage and come October, if there is continuing uncertainty, the October summit, if there is continuing uncertainty in London and they are, through whatever form, the UK is seeking another three-month or six-month extension to work out what it wants, I think it's entirely possible that uh, that, that is but not... But surely it would be very difficult for him to block it if it was specifically to hold what they call an electoral event, a referendum... Yes, but it may... But, but an election. It, but it may not be. And other leaders said this, and they said it at the June summit, that, you know, another extension can only be for something specific like that. And if it was, and if, you know, if it was essentially a give us another few months and we'll try and work it out, as the last extension was, <coughs> then, uh, then absolutely um, I, I could see that being blocked. Do you agree and with that, Ronan? Well, that's the danger of the, the rather than the vote on contents, the bill ordering the government to, to seek an extension, because the possibility is the Conservative rebels will feel we've done our remainder duty by passing that legislation. Boris Johnson goes off to Brussels and says, I want an extension, and the EU's, and so there's no election. And he says, well, why do you want it? And he says, well, I don't really want it, uh, but it's just being forced on me. It's hard to see them, I mean, the EU may say, well, then, to, I mean, they'll probably say to him, it's for an election or nothing. And then, you know, he could run out the clock, etc. So I think that is a real possibility. There's also, I was living in Brussels last year, remember this uh, journalist at the time, you speaking to one of the prime ministers from one of the newer Central East European countries, and they said, he, he said, this is the third time I've been dragged on a Sunday to Brussels for an emergency summit about this. 
2% of my economy is trade with Britain. I'm tired. Uh, I don't care what happens now. I just want to, I just want it to be over. And, and, and that is a sentiment that you hear increasingly every, uh, every summit. You know, the, the Cypriots or whatever are coming or the Maltese are coming and they're saying, are you still talking about this? Are, yes. are, you know, stay, go, we don't care, we need to move on. And if you imagine Britain stays, no more than no deal is not the end of the process. No Brexit is not the end of the process either. It's not like Britain would be exactly. coming back in saying, thrilled to be back, everyone's really, you know, it, it'll be a running sore in British politics. There'll probably be a huge populist right-wing party that could destroy the Conservatives. You know, it, you can't put the genie back into the bottle. I mean, David Cameron released this genie that has radicalised British politics and consumed so many of its institutions. And that's not easy to reverse. Ronan, can I ask you one specific thing, which is it's sort of a bit more in the nitty grittier in the weeds, which is you mentioned the thing about the clock running down. And there's talk about, you know, if there were to be an election, if there were to be, let's say, a vote of no confidence, which was followed in some circumstances by an election, we're told that Boris Johnson would prefer that election to be next Easter, which chimes with what you're saying. You get through the worst of the of the chaos, perhaps, in the weeks and maybe even months after after no deal and you're into the spring. But there is also talk that he could call the election in advance of October the 31st and election day would fall after October the 31st. In other words, in the immediate aftermath of no deal. And then there's a whole bunch of constitutional questions or of the conventions of UK politics that significant events are not supposed to happen in the course of an election campaign. I, how how likely or how possible is it that you, we might see a scenario like that? That's a, The civil service will be important in that. So yeah, this thing called Perda, where the government is not meant, during an election campaign, is not meant to take decisions that would kind of tie the hands of the next government. Now, the Prime Minister effectively has the right to set, in a vote of confidence, will have the right to set the date of the election. So he can set it for, uh, well, actually, there's a minimum of five weeks or 25 working days. So you're getting close, actually, from September, getting close to Brexit Day anyway. But he could set it after Brexit Day. So what 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 counts as tying the government's hands? Well, Brexiters say the default legal position is that they just go out so the government should do nothing and let that happen. Remainers say, no, they should apply for an extension so that the full range of choices are available to the um, incoming government, whatever government that is. But, I mean, I sus- if you think, if you look at how ruthlessly Brexit Brexiteers have kind of pushed the rules and how far they're willing to go, I'm sure if they decide to do it, they'll be willing to say the convention is do nothing, don't act, and the fact that don't act means that they're irre- effectively irreversibly out of the union because it's under EU law. It's, imp- it's very hard to to reverse article w- departure once it happens. Um, I think they will stick to their guns and say, well, that's the default position. We're doing nothing. And just to be clear on that, it's a convention. It's not a law or it's not part of the rather complex constitution of the United Kingdom. It's purely a convention. Yeah, I mean, the whole British constitution uh, runs on conventions and they've kind of always thought that's wonderfully flexible and pragmatic. But this whole, the last two years have shown that in a hyper-partisan atmosphere, that really doesn't work because it it requires everybody playing by kind of the gentleman's rules of the game. And if people think that the stakes are high enough to justify ungentlemanly behaviour, then they do it. And the British Constitution, because it's all based on convention, not legal texts or legal rules, really struggles to to contain that. It's, It's wholly unsuited 
for this mm. uh, for this type of thing. The entire British system since you know the 1800s has been predicated on the fact that the government was something that was done by a bunch of good chaps, and uh, and and that is just utterly insufficient for this type of you know truly existential clash between two worldviews. Well, indeed. And can I ask you just further to that, Pat? Uh, we had a piece in the Irish Times this week by, by Katie Hayward, which argues that um, the, the kind of the nexus of the argument as it stands at the moment, you know, the, 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 the around the backstop and then the concentric circles of all the further things around that has now become uh, not just... Uh, uh, I suppose, a a pragmatic issue about the border and maintaining the Good Friday Agreement and and peace on the island of Ireland, but it's actually become symbolic on the British side of its, uh, as Brexiteers see it, attempt to reassert and regain sovereignty. So it's about British sovereignty and ultimately British nationalism. And on the Irish side, it's also about about Irish sovereignty and Irish self-respect and Irish nationalism. In other words, it has be it has risen to a, a a symbolic level in both nations, which is going to make it even more difficult if it ever were possible to resolve. I, I think those are powerful undercurrents um, in this process, but I wouldn't overstate their effect on the high politics and the the decisions that will be made. What is true, I think, is uh, that you know this you know these are fifty. 100-year decisions. They're multi-generational decisions that politicians in Britain, in Ireland, in Europe will be making uh, over the coming days, or the coming days and uh, and weeks and months. And the stakes are really high. The argument is between the EU and Britain over the terms of its exit. But the ground zero of that argument is Ireland and specifically the Irish border. And the peace settlement, such as it is in the north, has been built on an elision of the border, on a retreating of the importance of national and tribal identity. The whole basis of the Good Friday Agreement was that people in the north could choose to be Irish or British or both and some of them, I guess, uh, uh, some of them nowadays are, are, are neither. And our common membership of the and EU was an important part of that. Was an important part of that. But I suppose the difficulties with the difficulties with this, and it's a special difficulty in the North and, uh, uh, and the danger of making the North ground zero of this, is that it has heightened and re-established those nationalistic, tribal identities and I think that's one of the reasons why it is you know having such a dreadful effect on on northern politics and on relations and 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 on the broader context of Anglo-Irish relations you know which spawned the agreement and all that uh, uh, and all that flowed from it and that is something that I think whenever this reaches uh, a resolution that political leaders in Ireland and in, in Dublin and in London will have to work very hard to rebuild. And Roland, can I ask you something in relation to that? Because I think you're very, I'm hoping that you're very well placed actually to answer this given your, your position and your nationality. We look across the water and I see an awful lot of people, often people in positions of some authority or supposedly some knowledge, who don't seem to have a sophisticated understanding of what Pat has just described. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I think there's... Uh, 
you know, when you're in Irish and Britain, one of the frustrating things is they always can, like they're surprised they have to change money and use euros if they go to Dublin or they, you know, they think they're aware it's different things, kind of like Scotland. Oh, you have your own parliament or something. And now they've really been confronted with the reality that Ireland is actually a, a different country. And, you know, a lot of times it's kind of a, uh, a kind of an affectionate but somewhat patronising attitude towards Ireland. And I think there was a good piece from some retired Irish diplomats in the Irish Times describing how they thought, oh, it's not serious. Oh, it's the Irish border, it's, it's, anything to do with Ireland is not that serious. So it couldn't be that the big project of Brexit would be derailed by by this kind of small, uh, small, small, small country that's not even really a different country. Now, they've kind of learned their lesson about that, but it's very hard to change hundreds of years of thinking in the space of three years. And in a way, they've made it so easy now for the Irish government, because if they were quite uh, on message and saying, oh, we object to the backstop, do you really want the backstop? Because you'll end up, you could get it in, this, in phase two, and you'll end up with a hard border. But by being kind of so unrealistic in their proposals and objecting to the whole withdrawal agreement, they've made, there's no decision the Irish government to take. There's, no in, there's nothing for the Irish government in backing off the backstop now. Uh, and they also, I think, don't realise the depth of commitment of other countries to the EU. All through, they, they don't understand that Ireland might have interests beyond its kind of history with Britain. And they think, oh, it must just be real nationalistic. You don't really like the EU. You're just trying to stick it to the Brits. And, you know, that's not the case. Ireland has kind of grown up. And the great thing about the EU is we now have kind of other fish to fry other than our historic relationship with Britain. And they really even in their negotiations, they don't, they keep thinking the delusion that German car makers would get Britain a great deal shows they don't understand how seriously the EU takes the integrity of the single market, how committed European politicians are to, to protecting the union. I mean, we're stuck, I think, in this position where the EU was assumed, uh, permanent EU membership was assumed in the 1998 Northern Ireland negotiations. And now we're trying to imagine well, what would have happened, what would we have thought if Britain had announced in January 1998, oh, by the way, we're leaving the EU? And there is, the answer is nobody knows because it throws up so many issues, but it would have been a massive part of the Northern Ireland negotiations. But you kind of can't go back in time and think, well, what would we have done if we had known that? And so each side has different interpretations. The British are saying it's not in the agreement. The Irish are saying the agreement was predicated on permanent mutual EU membership. And uh, both sides have their own view of history on that. I think the Irish one is a bit more reasonable, but yeah. Pat? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I've said it in here before that I think, you know, one of the fundamental reasons for Brexit, one of the things that was that has driven Brexit in the direction that it has gone is this British, a deep British incomprehension of the EU. And that extends, I think, to... Ireland's relationship with the EU. And uh, I think, you know, that's not a revelation to anybody to say that, but I think what we need to be careful of, and the EU probably needs to be careful of, is not to repeat the British mistake. It's if there are negotiations to come, that what will be important for Dublin and for Brussels is to put themselves into the shoes of the British, uh, the British government to try and understand 
what they want and to see if a compromise is possible. There's absolutely no sign at the moment that that Britain is trying to do that. But if there aren't but but if there are negotiations to come after this phony war phase, then if unless both sides do that, then there will be a crash. But there is it is fair to say, isn't it, that now as we stand in late August, there is no incentive or no opening for Leo Varadkar and his government to make us any sort of significant move of any kind on concessions around the backdrop and the withdrawal agreement, regardless of, and I think you were the person who put this out first, uh, you know, several weeks back, you know, the fact that coming down the line at us is the actual prospect of a hard border, which the backstop was designed to avert in the first place, that the dynamics and the mechanics are such as they are now, that there is there is nowhere politically for Leo Varadkar to go except the ground he currently stands on. 100%, yeah, I agree. Um, I think that that may change... Uh, we know, uh, you know, I think we know that Boris isn't serious about this because he's not making serious proposals. I mean, this morning he floated something in the uh, in the sun that what, what needs to happen is that Ireland needs to get temporary derogations from EU laws so that it could observe British standards uh, to avoid to avoid a border. I mean, that that's not a serious proposal and presumably he knows that if Boris doesn't know that that's not a serious proposal then you know we really are heading for which is more worrying which would be more the, the latter would be more worrying it would be yeah, yeah it would be so and, and, and I don't think that is I don't think that is true I think that you know Boris Johnson is a clever person I think he is surrounded by uh, by some uh, very clever people um, also some dunderheads but He's old, but 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 he's surrounded by lots of clever people, and that's why I think that, as I said earlier, that this is not intended as a serious negotiation. It is intended for a domestic audience. There may come a time, there may not, but there may come a time in the not too distant future when what he says is intended for actual negotiating purposes, and it's at that point that Irish and, and, and EU negotiators will need to put themselves in his shoes, will need to consider their options, will need to consider, is it wise to make some sort of, uh, uh, to make some sort of movement or some sort of concession? But that time uh, is, is not now. And Ronan, just a last word from you. I mean, we who observe politics always like high drama and the idea of a clock ticking and all those kind of things. And God knows we're, we're going to get it this autumn. It, it, it looks, looking across the Irish Sea at it, as if this is going to be one of the most dramatic periods in, in British constitutional politics for, you know, arguably some would say, some would say more than a century. What, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, the Conservative Party is fighting for its existence because if they don't, I mean, the European election results in which they got 9% shows that if they don't deliver Brexit, they're, the, you know, the Conservative Party, the most kind of stable institution of British politics, is finished. Um, the Constitution has been put under all this pressure. Uh, the uh, long, long term, if they leave with no deal, they could lose Scotland. Northern Ireland's future is in question. Um there's poisonous relations in Dublin and London. It's become very emotional. I mean, and the system, but the British system is not working. The, we're, the situation we're now in is a weird mix of direct democracy where the people decided the initial referendum and then captured by very small interests. 
the, the, the kind of what I can't remember was it hundred thousand or eight uh, members of the Conservative Party? Hundred seventy thousand. Yeah. Yeah. They are driving this. So it's a weird mixture, bringing the whole electorate in and then this tiny extreme segment driving everything and the kind of undermining of the neutrality of the speaker, parliament comes and the whole thing is falling apart uh, in a way. I think the whole British constitution has looked like it's under real strain. For Ireland, I think we're stuck now. I mean, if the government went back in time, they might think, I wonder, should we have been a little more uh, accommodating on the backstop earlier on before when Theresa May or someone more modern before Boris Johnson. But it's, now it's too late for that. We're stuck on a path that probably or could well lead to the hardest of borders. But there's nothing that can get us off that right now because there's no point conceding something to Boris, to Boris Johnson, who, um, you know, who is who is bent on uh, appeasing the Brexit party. And the last thing I'll say is, if you remember the polls before 2016, before the referendum, showed that tiny percentages of people thought that EU, the EU was the most important issue in British politics. And by having the referendum, they've managed to convince most, like large amounts of voters in Britain, nearly half voters, that that is the most important issue in their lives, something they didn't really care about three years ago. It shows, I think, the... Uh, importance of actually institutions you know, using representative democracy, not referendums. We've had some nice referendums recently in Ireland, but I, they, we sh looking at Britain's experience the last three years, we should think about how much we, we really want to have them in our system. I think that's a subject for for a full Another podcast day. in its own in its own right <laughs> as well. Series. Yeah, listen, Ronan and Pat, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can get us at irishtimes.com slash podcast as well. And your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Thanks for listening. 